brought to you by Penguin. Just before we begin, we'd love to know what you think about the Penguin podcast. Share your feedback and you could be in with a chance to win a year's supply of audiobooks. Just go to the link in the episode notes of this podcast for more details. So I wrote this one in in about six months. I mean, come on. Really? That's just showing off. (laughs) I don't (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. This is the place where our supremely talented authors choose a handful of objects that have inspired their work. Today, my guest is an extraordinary new writer. Her debut novel was the co-winner of Stormzy's Murky Books New Writer's Prize. Her novel, We Are All Birds of Uganda, brings together two stories. Samir, the son of refugees, is a London lawyer who is not sure his high-achieving life is right for him. And Hassan, his story is set in the past, is a successful businessman whose family moved from India to Uganda and began to suffer under Idi Amin's new regime. Its author, and my guest today, is Hafsa Zayn. Hafsa, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you. It's great to have you here. Um, Okay, so almost as if you have an S on your chest, you are... are a resolution lawyer and then you jump into a writer's telephone box and you come out with a cape on and you (laughs) deliver this extraordinary novel. How did you fit both things in is the question you'll probably get asked more than any other question for the next year or so. Honestly, it's a, it's a, it's a question I ask myself all the time now as well. The prize itself was, is all very discreet. You had to submit 2,500 words to enter the competition. Um, and then it was just kind of wait to see if you're shortlisted. And if you were shortlisted, wait to see if you won. And so it didn't require a lot of investment from me in terms of actually getting myself to a point where... I would, you know, I then actually won. I only had to start writing the book properly once I'd won the competition, um, which again was perhaps not the wisest decision on my part. Probably should have started writing it earlier. Um, but yeah, I'm a lawyer, so I, I work well with deadlines. So, you know. That's true. That's true. And attention to detail. So look, the lawyer part, everyone's happy. The Nigerian side of the family are happy. The Pakistani family. I mean, you've, you're doing good here being a lawyer, right? <laughs> What about, I'm thinking of leaving the law to become an author. How does that conversation play out? Is it met with open arms? I don't think in my um, family and generally in like the sort of like second generation immigrant families, I know that going into the creative industry is necessarily something that's encouraged. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things like, well, we didn't make all these sacrifices and come here so that you could just go off and, you know, (laughs) know, not earn much money or, you know. And it's understandable, right? Yeah, you can see where they're coming from, which is a little bit sad, obviously, because then you're lacking diversity in these True. industries. My parents were always very, very supportive of me writing. And obviously, they were over the moon when I when I won the competition. But I, I don't know that they would have felt the same way if I'd sort of said, OK, I'm not I don't want to do a degree or I, I don't want to do a degree in law or, you know, I just want to go and draw for a living or write for a living. I'm not sure how that would have gone down. There are quite a lot of similarities between, I guess, the Nigerian parental attitude towards what their children should do and a Asian one. Now, I obviously know much less about a Nigerian attitude, but I've heard it 
over the years, many times, whether it be Ghanaian or Nigerian, there is a similar emphasis on education, education, education. Most of my Nigerian family still live in Nigeria, whereas most of my Pakistani, like sort of my mum's immediate family, don't live in Pakistan. Um, and the communities that I was raised in were very South Asian. That is a very, very sort of education, like pride, boast, boastful about your children kind of culture. And so everyone's vying and competing to, to know, you know, to produce the like top lawyer or top pharmacist or top doctor or whatever. Let's go back to your grandfather uh, in Nigeria, because the first object that you've bought today is very much related to him. These are letters, aren't they? Tell us about these letters, Afsa. Yeah, sure. So when I was growing up, we didn't have sort of instant communications and internet and we just had snail mail. And I, to be honest, even if we'd had instant communications and internet, my grandfather probably wouldn't have used them. Um, but I used to write letters to him. And, um, you know, they would they would take their time to get to Nigeria and it would take even longer to get a response back. Um, but when he'd write back to me, he would always send me my letter back with his letter and he would sort of have taken a red pen and marked up my letter, corrected the grammar, you know, changed a few words here and there, and just sort of tried to make it a bit of a better letter. I'm talking about when I was sort of like eight or nine years old, so very young. Um, but I kept all those letters and I'm so happy I did because obviously, you know, I think at that age, sort of eight and nine, you don't really, you don't ever really contemplate that there might be a day when your grandparents might not be around anymore. Um, but obviously that day does come. And so now um, when I look at them, I just feel, you know, I kind of well up and I feel so emotional looking at them. That He was always encouraging me to be a writer. He didn't even know it. <laughs> mm. How do you navigate what underpins your identity? Are you comfortable merging in and out of different identities? Yeah, it's a it's a very I think identity is quite at least for me it's a very nebulous concept because not only am I obviously half Pakistani half Nigerian I'm also British and I grew up in Saudi and the States and various parts of England and I've always felt like well, I don't necessarily have one place where I belonged and I think you know as I've gotten older it's 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 taken sort of its time and it's come round for me to realise that the thing that makes me feel like I belong somewhere is the family or the people that I'm with. And it's got nothing to do with the place and it's got nothing to do with the kind of, you know, who these people are. It's just, you know, whether they're Nigerian or South Asian or white or British or whatever. It's just to do with, you know, whether I feel you know, like they're my family or whether I, you know, I call my friends my family, like whether I, whether they make me feel like that. And let's move on to your next uh, object, which is a, a paper and a pen. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, why not, I guess. But then saying that, no one writes books <laughs> on a paper and a pen, do they? I mean, not anymore. You know, not no, anymore. Not no. anymore. J.K. Rowling used to write hers on napkins. Oh, okay. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. But... No, I, I so that that I have or had when I was writing um we are all, we are all birds of Uganda because I like to kind of map out my characters arcs and my characters timelines and their family trees and kind of like sort of visually or like graphically depict um where like parts of my story are going so it's not stuff that you can do very easily 
or very quickly um, if you're if you're not like a graphic designer on a computer. So I would always sort of have my paper and pen at the ready um, to plot these kind of graphics of why. So because I find it really I find it really easy to um, understand things when I can when I can visualize them as like drawings. Sounds a bit strange, um, but yeah. So for me, that was like a really important part of, of writing this story in particular because it's very complex and it's very interwoven, and there's lots and lots of sort of details from you know one chapter that might be relevant in chapter 10 or in another story you know in the in the is in like in the other narrative um so it was really vital for me to have um sort of the ability to freestyle on a piece of paper well, that sounds very important in terms of the story for both Samir and Hassan I mean they're trying to find out where they fit in why has the word home become so complicated for them I guess we can start with Hassan Hassan's obviously ethnically South Asian, um, but he was born in Uganda. You know, and again, I know a lot of people from that kind of background. My my own mother was born in Nigeria, so she met my father, even though she's Pakistani. There is this kind of, I think, particularly for Hassan, because he's a he's he's what you call basically a twice migrant. This phenomenon of twice migration, where first you have uh, South Asians moving from South Asia to East Africa, and then you have them moving on again after if after the Idi Amin expulsion. So, home already before the the um, sort of strife with Idi Amin began for South Asians in Uganda was you know a, a little bit of a a difficult concept. They felt like Uganda was their home. There are parts in the story where when, when it comes to the point of the expulsion, Hassan's saying, well, I can't go back to India because, of course, that's not, that's not my home. And India didn't want to take the, the, the South Asian Ugandans anyway. Um, mm. so, you, so you have that aspect of it. But then, as I was saying, because there are twice migrants, you also had the issue of where would their home then become once they were expelled? Why was love an important aspect of this novel? Love, love is that isn't it like the crux of everything? Isn't it like the core of like? All? No, no, no. Being a doctor <laughs> is the crux of everything, followed by a lawyer and then maybe an engineer. That is the crux of everything. I've said, good grief, what kind of Nigerian Pakistani girl are you? Um, <laughs> yes. I, I, honestly, I don't think I could write a story without writing about love in some form of the. That's the Bollywood in you. Yeah, it's the romantic in me. No. No, I don't even necessarily mean romantic love, but like any yes. kind of like friendship love or, you know, familial love or whatever it is. But, um, you know, the, the book obviously deals with romantic love. It also deals with familial and, you know, love between friends. I think love is just, um, you know, it had to be had to be written about. It's a fundamental part of life. Um, and also, you know, I guess it ties into the to the idea of like belonging and kind of, you know, home and identity and all that kind of thing. You feel you feel like you belong with people who love you. Belonging is important, isn't it? To defend his sense of belonging. Is, what do you think? Because our, our parents' generation, I think, very much defined themselves in, in quite, quite rigid terms. That seems to be coming more fluid now. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, again, as a result of the sort of mixed part of me or the mixedness of me, there is no avoiding that I would have to be multiple identities. There is, I think, also 
great value in flexibility and empathy and the ability to kind of see multiple perspectives when you're when you're when you're a part of every single thing you naturally empathize with every single thing like i empathize with south asians i empathize with nigerians i empathize with british people i i feel like i can see the whole spectrum you know if you're just one if you're just one thing and you're just one you're just coming from one angle you don't necessarily have that that is indeed a blessing as is food which is your next <laughs> object Tell us then, why is food? Food in its entirety is your object number three. Well, I didn't want to pick one specific thing in case you said, oh, can you make it and bring it? (laughs) (laughs) Well. (laughs) Yeah, if you said butter chicken, I would have found whatever transport I needed to get down and get some of that. So, yeah, don't worry about that. Um, Although that's a very Punjabi dish. I don't know if uh, that's a Pakistani dish. No, we, we we don't eat that, but obviously I've eaten it when I've gone out to eat. But yeah, no, I, I, I mean, food was there as a kind of, it's a kind of, I find it a little, a little distraction from the writing, but it's still a creative process. And my mum always texts me recipes um, and they're very, very high level recipes. They will, they will, the, the, rec- the recipes she sends me are like, you know, add masala. That that's like the entire rest. You know, there's no like explanation of which spices are in the masala, how much to add of each. And so it's always a bit of an experimental process. Yeah, I, I really, I really enjoy, I enjoy that kind of um, outlet. You see, I'm such a fraud in the kitchen because I will be that guy that's measuring out 200 grams of this. Whereas my mum would look at me. None of our mums measure anything out, do they? <laughs> no, they, they, they wouldn't even know. what to tell us if we said well how many grams of that i don't know exactly it's just instinct instinct as my my mum would say the more you do it then you'll learn well okay 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 what is then the zion signature dish if there was the if i went to the hafsa restaurant because let's face it you're pretty high achieving so after you've won the booker (laughs) prize you'll probably go and set up a restaurant um uh, what would the dish be can I pick two? Because yeah, go on. It's, too hard, it's too hard to pick one. Um, my favourite dishes are, and again, these are stolen from my mum. They're not my own creations. So I'll just put that out there. So if my mum listens to this, she won't be like, how could you say they were yours? Um, is, my, is, is my mother's peanut butter chicken curry, which is, wow. which is you know, just like a standard like chicken yeah. chicken curry, but with peanut butter in it. And it's just delicious. And the other thing that she does, which is just excellent, is um, beetroot lamb curry. So the, wow. you know the, this is this is like a is that a, slow cooked lamb? Well, you you cook you can it depends. Like she uses a pressure cooker. I have to, I don't right. have one, so I have right, to just okay. I just have to wait yeah. for like old three school. hours. Pressure cooker is so <laughs> yeah. old school. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I was intrigued about when reading the book was how you get yourself into the headspace to write a letter from 1953 because language evolves. You have to be kind of truthful to the emotions of the time. Was that difficult? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because I... I spent a lot of time researching the Hassan chapters because obviously they're historic and I didn't know, I mean, I knew vaguely, obviously, the story of, of the expulsion, but the level of detail into which I go in the Hassan chapters, I obviously didn't know that level of detail. So if I had like a 10 hour day, I would probably spend eight hours 
reading and researching and two hours writing if I was on working on Hassan. Um, so there was a lot of kind of time spent understanding um, what was going on there politically, culturally, um, you know, and that kind of thing. I mean, like, the reading and the research itself gets you into one place. Um, putting your kind of head into the headspace of, you know, a man who's kind of, well, firstly, like not not my gender, but also just like not, you know, someone who I maybe could have known, but don't know. Um, you know, that's another thing. That's, that's a completely another thing. But I think generally speaking, all of my characters are based on people that I have seen or heard or my own personal experiences or my own personal actions, you know, things that I've said or done or had said or done to me or that I've seen or read about. So, you know, it's a it's a funny little mix of everything that I've seen and experienced. I mean, my mum said this to me once, you'll never be a good writer until you have like lived and seen the world a bit. Because I think once you've got to that point, you you kind of you're able to create these characters by drawing on all of your experiences. And those aren't necessarily your personal experiences, but they're a product of what you've read and what you've seen as well. I just want to focus on letter writing um, because there's a moment, the winter of 1972, in fact, where Hassan has found he is without citizenship under the new president of Uganda, Idi Amin. Let's hear some of his letter now. And so we queued once again this time to enter the British Embassy. This queue tripled in size from the last. It took us two full days to reach the building front. Kampala ground to a halt whilst its Asian population waited like cattle, rows upon rows of white knuckles holding on to our precious identity papers for dear life, the sun beating down on us with a new, cruel intensity. Shabnam packed tiffin boxes and we sat on reed mats and waited, swatting away flies and street sellers, sweat dripping into our eyes whilst the soldiers sat watching the entire spectacle in the shade of acacia trees. A man from the British press came to observe us with a camera and an enormous microphone, stalking up and down the queue gaily, looking for someone who would talk to him. I turned my face away from the camera's roving gaze, deeply embarrassed. Waiting two days in a queue is no easy feat, let me tell you. Dignity is lost in queues of such length. We pissed behind trees already stinking of stale urine, unable to wait in yet another line for the toilet. My poor boy Shazeb slept in that queue overnight. The closer we got, the worse it felt to be so close, until, finally, we arrived at the front. That was We Are All Birds of Uganda, read by Tahin Modak and Sagar Arya, and written by my guest, Hafsa Zayn. It's uh, available to buy and download on the 21st of January, and there's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Why go to Uganda to tell part of this story? I grew up with like a lot of personal sort of experience of the kind of mix of South Asian and black, you know, cultures. But I didn't know that many East African South Asians until I met my husband. You know, when I met him, I kind of heard for the first time the story of the expulsion. And I'd, ne I'd never really known anything about it before. 
And when I spoke to my kind of, you know, my, my contemporaries, like my, my other South Asian friends, those who weren't South Asian, Ugandan or East African Indian, they didn't know the story either. Um, and I found that really sad because it's obviously a huge, huge part of British colonial history. And, um, you know, of all of the kind of things that happened in East Africa, like things that happened in Kenya and Tanzania, and there were all these kind of rules and regulations that were designed to drive the South Asians out. Uh, Uganda was obviously the most kind of dramatic with its actual expulsion order. And if you don't leave, we'll throw you into camps kind of thing. So that story was in a way, sort of the juiciest of, of the of the of the stories of of the South Asian migration, and so that's why I wanted to write about Uganda in particular. So, where did this come into your thought process? Where did you find out about this that Samir, as a character, would experience racism in both countries? You know, drawing again on my kind of personal personal kind of background and my personal history, I have experienced you know microaggressions or racism from my sort of like you know, the the white community, I've experienced them from the South Asian community. And I've also experienced them from the black community. Um, I've, I've had it from all angles because I'm not sufficiently any of those cultures to some people. Samir, he obviously like, you know, suffers kind of a racism at the hands of um, the white community in the UK. He kind of experiences the kind of get out of my country uh, that, you know, in, when, he, when he's in Uganda, that that he his family might have experienced when they migrated to England um, from, from Uganda. But he himself also has his own preconceptions and misconceptions about the black community. What I guess I really wanted to show is that it, it, there are multiple angles and multiple facets of racism and that, you know, it's not a sort of linear issue or it's not kind of binary where you have like one race against another and you can have all these different race issues, racial issues at play because of the fact that there are three different races that are obviously all in issue or at play in, in this novel. I really wanted to make sure that the reader could read one narrative identify kind of what they thought was problematic with the viewpoints that were espoused in that narrative and then compare it to the to the other narrative and see what kind of parallels they could draw um because part part of the reason for writing a dual narrative structure was to kind of show that you know the the issues that you think you might have resolved um as a result of times having moved forward and generations having changed don't always necessarily get resolved and they they evolve these issues evolve and you know themselves they migrate into different things let's get to your final object hafsa which is a stack of your favorite writings uh, not your own from eight years old, but uh, but some some slightly more famous people, you know, historically speaking. Tell us about these writings. Yeah, so I I, I think you know one thing that really always helps me to write is to read, and I think that you know reading is like probably the most important thing you can do as a writer. The books that I mentioned here, <laughs> one of them is like Shakespeare's Sonnets. I read that when I was at school, and they've just always stayed with me. Um, I just I just think they're incredibly beautiful. I also like the fact that they weren't his full plays. You know, they were just really short. I could just pick one out and read it and just feel an overwhelming sense of, wow, this is just amazing. And I, I put a recent book in there that I read recently um, 
Kitchen by Banana Ishitomo, which I just absolutely loved. It's Japanese, it's translation. I put in a, a Toni Morrison, which I, she's probably my favourite writer. I just love her. So that was Song of Solomon, um, which also has like similar-ish kind of themes to, um, you know, discovering your past and your identity and kind of the journey of like a young male through through that in it as well. But yeah, these are books that I've kind of read many times. And yeah, I mean, some, some of Shakespeare's sonnets I, I actually know off by heart. Um, but I... I like to go back to those texts when I feel, um, you know, like I'm kind of having a writer's block or I'm in like a creative rut because the the writings of like the greats inspire me massively to want to create. So when I read something that I just think is phenomenal or brilliant, my immediate instinct is to be like, I want to do that. I want to write like that. I want to be able to create something like that. I want to inspire people the way that this is inspiring me. Um, and so, yeah, that's why that's why I have a little stack of my favourites. In terms of your writing, what's next? Well, <laughs> I do have some ideas for um, next novels, so I will okay. I will need some serious time pressure to actually produce yes. them. <laughs> yeah, Lucas, well, you wrote this. Okay, let's just put the date out there. I'll let you tell people listening to the Penguin podcast how long it took you to write this novel, your debut novel, We Are All Birds of Uganda. How long? So I wrote this one in in about six months. I mean, come on. Really? That's just showing off. (laughs) (laughs) Six months. I I had no choice. I think think because I won the prize and Mercury were like, we want to keep the momentum up and, you know, we wanted to publish it next year and... As my lawyerly self, I had read the terms and the conditions of the con- of the um, <laughs> of, had, yeah, of the competition, and yeah. one of the T's and C's was we will you know select the winning sort of um, entry based on you know how close to a full manuscript you have, and I felt bad because I had nothing close to a full manuscript when they selected me. I had I had five chapters, so I had about twenty three thousand words. Yeah, they just said, look, we really we really want to publish this next year. I mean, obviously, COVID kind of messed all of this up, but at that time it was very much can you please send us a first draft by December and so I just said okay I'm used to working to deadlines I will do my best and I kind of just gunned it at the weekends Superb Superb Um, Your husband I guess didn't see you much for six months No nor my friends nor my family (laughs) like I was just in a hole for about six months Well look it's been worth it it's such a beautiful read and uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what you do next. Talk about putting pressure on you. But then you're used to that. You grew up in an Asian and Nigerian household. It's fine. Um, Hafsa, thank you so much for hanging out with us today on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And do remember to subscribe, comment, and most importantly, spread the word about this podcast. It helps us to make more. Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too. by Caleb Femi. The debut poetry collection from the first Young People's Poet Laureate for London, Poor is the poetic documentation of working-class life in London, the highs and lows, the laughs and loves in spite of circumstance. Panoramic and picturesque. And so I slipped through the cracks. Can't tell you how it was done. The plain act of drawing breath each time, dubbing alternative endings for myself until my presence at funerals felt like bragging, run over 
twice, stabbed, shot, a car crash. I'm a museum of all the ghosts I could have been. Why me? When better boys deserve life. The audiobook edition of Poor is available to download now.